Psalm 11, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. In the Lord, I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string, that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals. Fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. And then reading from the New Testament, book of Romans, chapter 3, beginning at verse 9 and reading through the end of the chapter, page 1,296 in the Pew Bible, page 1,296. Romans 3, verse 9, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because of his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. 
Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. As far as the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. It is our privilege this evening to consider God's Word as summarized by the Heidelberg Catechism, and so I invite you to turn to page 11 in the back of the Psalter Hymnal. Uh, Page 11, Lord's Day 4 of the Heidelberg Catechism. But doesn't God do man an injustice by requiring requiring in His law what man is unable to do? No, God created man with the ability to keep the law. Man, however, tempted by the devil in reckless disobedience, robbed himself and his descendants of these gifts. Will God permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly angry about the sin we are born with as well as the sins we personally commit. As a just judge, he punishes them now and in eternity. He has declared, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. But isn't God also merciful? God is certainly merciful, but he is also just, and his justice demands that sins committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. Beloved of the Lord, the theme of the Heidelberg Catechism is comfort. It starts out with that well-known question, what is your only comfort in life and death? And then asks, what do we need to know to live and die in the joy of Christian comfort? What is comfort? What's the nature of comfort? How would you explain comfort to someone if you were asked to do so? Well, if you think about comfort, you realize that in order for comfort to make sense, there has to be some adverse circumstance, some bad thing about which we need to be comforted. And when you think about it that way, we can define comfort, I think, fairly simply and easily by saying that comfort exists when the good news is more powerful than the bad news. Comfort is when the good news is more powerful than the bad news. Let me give you an illustration from the field of medicine. Say you go to the doctor and he says, I have bad news for you. You have skin cancer. But, he says, there's also good news. The kind of skin cancer you have is basal cell carcinoma, a very benign form of cancer which can be easily remedied. I'll simply refer you to a dermatologist. He'll give you a local anesthetic. He'll take a slice of skin off. He'll have a technician put it under the microscope to make microscope to make sure he went deep enough. And if he did, he'll put a Band-Aid on it and you can go home and you're cured. It's that simple. Basal cell carcinoma is not a life-threatening illness, and so there's good news that's more powerful than the bad news. That's an example of comfort. Uh, The doctor has given you the bad news, but then comforted you with some more powerful news that there is a cure readily available. Well, uh, 
In order to appreciate the comfort, then, you must certainly be aware of the adverse condition. If the doctor hands you a bottle of pills and says, here, take these pills, but doesn't explain why, and and you're feeling fine, you may say, "Why, why should I take this medicine? You know, I'm feeling fine. The doctor says, you know, here's some pills that are good for you. This, this is good news for you. I got these pills for you. Uh, out of context, with no adverse condition, why should I take the pills? Oh, he says, well, you have hypertension. You know, that's what uh, high blood pressure, they call that the silent killer because it doesn't have a lot of symptoms that are readily noticeable. And I've taken your blood pressure and, and you have high blood pressure. You need these pills. And so you take the pills and then you go to the uh, store and you buy one of those uh, home blood pressure measurers and you measure your blood pressure and you say, yes, indeed, I, I do have high blood pressure. I better take the pills. You know, you need to be aware of the adverse condition before you appreciate the good news. And that's what the catechism tells us. What do you need to know in order to enjoy comfort? You need to know the bad news. The bad news that our sin and misery are very great. And we've been considering that the past couple of Sunday evenings. We've seen that the Scriptures indeed teach that we are prone by nature to hate both God and our neighbor, and that the situation is so bad that we are incapable of doing anything good apart from a miraculous new birth given through God's grace. As we read from Romans 3, all we like sheep have gone astray, and there is none righteous, no, not one. We've all turned aside. No one does good, not one. Their throat is an open grave with their, with their tongues. They have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Mouth full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The situation is bad. And because the situation is bad, we, we need good news. But now, human pride doesn't readily accept the bad news. And before the catechism goes on to point out the answer, it it deals with some common objections that people raise with regard to the bad news. People said, no, I don't think it's, it's all that bad a situation because... Well, first of all, it wouldn't be fair to, for God to hold us accountable. If, we're, if our nature is broken from the time we're born, how can he hold us accountable for that? So it, it can't be that God is going to punish us. Uh, uh, God really won't punish us. That's the, the second objection that people raise. You know, his, God's bark is worse than his bite, and he's just trying to scare us into being good people. But he's not really going to punish everybody forever, is he? Uh, He's not all that angry and upset about our sins. And a third objection that uh, people raise is, uh, well, you know, God's merciful. Yeah, we've sinned, but, but to err is human, to forgive is divine. God's mercy is certainly going to, to trump his, his justice, isn't it? Well, these are some of the objections that are raised to the the bad news about human nature and human guilt and human sin. And so uh, the Catechism uh, rightly uh, has us consider these objections and answer these objections before we go on to point out how we are indeed uh, 
delivered from our woeful condition. Well, let's look at these objections. First of all, uh, is the objection, it's not fair for God to hold us accountable for something we can't do. If we are by nature prone to hate both God and our neighbor, then how can he hold us accountable? Uh, God, uh, it would be wrong, you know, if, if somebody's uh, born uh, blind, do, do we punish them and say, you guilty sinner, you, you were born blind and, and therefore you deserve no, no help, no assistance. If they're born with a club foot, do we say, uh, well, that's, that's just tough. You, 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 you deserve that. If you were born that way, then uh, you must deserve it. And God is punishing you and it would be wrong for us to, to try to help you in any way. Uh, if it's our nature... God can't hold us accountable for being uh, blind or, or lame. And, and uh, if our spirits are born broken, why does he hold us accountable? Well, this idea of saying to God, it's not fair, questioning the righteousness of God. As I mentioned uh, on a previous occasion, this is one of those questions where we ought to be just a little bit embarrassed to ask the question, or to, to raise the issue about, is God fair? Of course God is fair, but, but the wonder of Scripture is that God condescends to answer this kind of question. We, we see it being asked in Genesis 18 when God comes to Abraham, his friend, and because Abraham is his friend, he reveals to Abraham what he's about to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. And of course, Abraham is very much concerned about his nephew Lot and Lot's family who have taken up residence in Sodom. And so he begins to to approach God and said, "Will will you destroy the righteous along with the wicked. Will not the God of all the earth do what is right? <laughs> He's concerned that God would do what is right, and he, he puts it in a question. Are you going to destroy the righteous along with the wicked? That, that would be wrong for you to do that. Abraham, are you thinking? <laughs> are you accusing God or suggesting that, that God might not do the right thing? And lo and behold... God condescends to answer Abraham's question, even though Abraham puts it to God in one form or another over six six times. uh, He asks the question, and yet six times God patiently answers him. Well, uh, is it unjust for God to punish us if we're born with a sinful nature? No, it's not unjust, because as the Catechism states and Scripture teach, our culpability, our disability is culpable. Our disability is culpable. That is, our inability, our broken nature is our own fault, and we are guilty because of it. It's not like a man being born blind. It's not like a man being born lame. It is something that we have robbed ourselves of. It's more like the tenant who can't pay his rent because he took his paycheck to the racetrack and lost all his money and then goes to his landlord and says, it's wrong for you to demand the rent money from me when I don't have it. 
How can you demand something from me that I don't have, that I have no ability to pay? Yeah, yeah, you don't have it. You don't have the ability to pay. It's not in your nature to be able to pay it because you don't have it. But why don't you have it? You have it because you foolishly spent it on on gambling. You, You gave it away. You threw it away. It's your own fault that you're in that position. We need to recognize that uh, our sinful condition is the sinful condition that we have brought upon ourselves. When we don't attempt to kill our conscience and cast our blame on others, we have to humbly admit that our inability is due to our own unwillingness. When Jesus wept over Jerusalem, he could have just as well been weeping over us. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you, gathered your children, but you would not. You wouldn't do it. You wouldn't come to me. You stubbornly refused. That is our sin. Even the sin which we are born with, Adam's sin, which is imputed to us. It's, it's fair for God to hold us accountable for that. It's fair because Adam was our representative. He was our legal representative, and he was our perfect representative. He was perfect, and he was put in a perfect environment where he lacked nothing. He had every reason to trust God, every reason to believe God, every reason to obey God, No reason not to, no excuse not to, and yet he willfully disobeyed God. And as our representative, as our legal representative, as our covenant head, it is right for God to attribute that to us. And if we don't like that, if we want to reject that covenantal connection, then we have to also reject the gospel because the same covenantal connection is our salvation. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so righteousness and life come into the world through one man, the man Jesus Christ. And when we are united to Christ as our covenant head, then his perfect righteousness and satisfaction is credited to you. Do you want to throw that out also? I think not. It is the glorious gift of God's grace that he gives us a second Adam, a last Adam, who succeeded where the first Adam failed, so that Jesus Christ is now the head of the church and the body of Christ, and that he is our leader And he is our representative before God. And we are clothed before God in the perfect righteousness and satisfaction of Jesus Christ. This is our salvation. So God is perfectly fair and just. We've robbed ourselves of our ability to obey him. And therefore, he is justly, uh, it is right for him. To, uh, to punish us for our sins. But then people will say, well, yeah, but God, God's not going to punish sin, is he really? This is the hope of many, that 
justice will be laid aside and God will show leniency, that, that God's threats are just a bluff. There are many in the world today who think the idea of punishment is old-fashioned and outdated. They say that punishment serves no purpose and is counterproductive. It just makes people angrier and commit more crimes. What we, what we need is to try to understand and work for rehabilitation, not punishment. Many times even churchgoers feel that if they say they're sorry and if they promise never to do it again, then they should be given a pass. They should uh, just be given a warning and, and not be punished. You know, the flashing red lights in the rearview mirror and you say, oh, officer, I'm so sorry. You're, you're right. I, I didn't... Uh, I shouldn't have done it. I, I was speeding or I, I did run the stop sign. Uh, but I, I promise I'll be more careful. Can't, can't you just give me a warning? We don't like the idea of punishment when we have clearly broken the law. God is a just judge and his justice demands that sin be punished. He is, as the catechism says, terribly angry. Terribly angry because of our sin. Now, why is that? There are some theologians in the world today who say, you know, God is so totally other. God is so high and lifted up that it is an insult to him to picture him as some uh, far eastern potentate who has to rule with a rod of iron and, and keep his subjects uh, in fear by cracking the whip uh, over their heads continually. God can't be moved by anything that we do because he is too high and lifted up. That's a wrong picture of God. Imagine, imagine that you are an employer or a shift supervisor or some kind of foreman, and one of the men who work under your direction, uh, under your employ, comes to work uh, drunk, so drunk they can hardly stand up straight. And the company has a clear, unambiguous policy that if you come to work drunk, you get fired on the spot. And so you, as the foreman, have to fire this man. Now, it's, it's, a, it's a messy business, isn't it? Uh, it's, it's something that upsets the day's work schedule. You have to find somebody to cover uh, his, his workload, and you have to uh, begin the process of getting a permanent replacement. Uh, it, it ruins the day, but it doesn't ruin your life. It's something that you get beyond and, and you move beyond. Uh, you're not terribly angry, so angry and upset that uh, uh, you can't ever forget the, the incident. But if that same foreman goes home that night a little early and unexpectedly comes upon his wife in the arms of another man, well, that is an entirely different situation, isn't it? Then you can understand that indeed he would be terribly angry and that this is a situation that will affect the rest of his life. Even if he and his wife are able to work out their differences and be reconciled, it's something that is always going to be in the background. He may, able, may be able to act in a way that shows love and forgiveness, 
but uh, the hurt will always be there. Well, what kind of relationship do we have with God? Is he, is he our foreman? Or is he our husband? Are we his bride? You know the answer to that, that, that question, I'm sure. God is not our foreman. He's not a distant king who only looks upon us as subjects to uh, do the work of the kingdom. He is a God who loves us as a husband loves his bride. Every time Israel in the Old Testament is guilty of going after other gods, he says, you've committed adultery. You've gone whoring after other gods. And God is deeply hurt. Hurt by the sin we are born with. Hurt by the sins that we commit. And so much so that he has promised to punish sin eternally. First is everyone who does not do the things written in the book of the law to do them. And as a just judge, he punishes them now, now and in eternity. Already the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness. We see that people who sow to the wind reap the whirlwind. We do foolish things. We reap the results of those foolish things in painful things that happen to us. God is punishing us for our sins. Now, for the Christian, it's discipline, loving discipline. But for unbelievers uh, who have hardened their heart against God, it's the beginning of eternal damnation. A damnation that indeed is eternal. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, we read that the devil and his workers, the false prophets also, will be tormented day and night forever and ever. In the Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, we read there, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Many years ago, a very famous Christian evangelist was interviewed by Life magazine, and the interviewer uh, said uh, to this famous evangelist, do you really think that God is going to punish people in hell forever? And sadly, this famous evangelist said, well, maybe God's mercy is bigger than what we know. What do you think of that answer? God's mercy is bigger than what we know. Well, if God's mercy is bigger than what we know, if hell is not forever, then Paul lied to us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And and. And John lied to us in, in Revelation 20, verse 10. And Jesus lied to us in Mark 9:48 when he said, The fire of hell is never quenched. We know that hell is forever because God has told us so. Jesus has told us so. Jesus' apostles have told us so. Indeed, it is a terrible thing. 
to fall into the hands of an angry God. He is a just judge who will punish sin from all eternity. Now, if that sounds cruel, consider what it would be what would be the case if that weren't the, if it weren't true if if god didn't punish wickedness you know that's what the psalmist is dealing with in psalm 11 he says how can i say to my soul flee to the lord when the wicked bend their bow and and shoot me how 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 can i find peace when the wicked are on the rampage and the wicked are attacking me, what comfort is for there for me when, when the foundations of, of civil order are shaken by the wicked, when they go about con- doing great wicked things, how can I say to my soul, be at peace and, and fly like a bird to the mountain of the Lord and, and there be safe? No. If the wicked go unpunished, there is no safe place to go. But then he reflects upon the fact that the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven and his eye beholds the wicked. And he is going to rain down fire and brimstone on the wicked. He makes reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. The fire and brimstone of Sodom and Gomorrah foreshadows the last judgment and the great judgment of God when all the wicked will be destroyed. Then the Lord shows his love to the righteous and the righteous behold the face of God. He finds comfort in the fact that there is justice. I think we can relate to this when we think what, what's happening in, in our cities today, in, in some of our major cities where the police and the courts can't stop criminals from murdering one another. The city of Chicago, a prime example, the murder rate just spikes every year. Year after year, they say the murder rate has increased over the previous year. And, and through this corona thing, it's, it's doubled last year's rate, the murder rate in Chicago. The police find out that there's a dead body on the street and they go and they investigate and nobody will say anything to them. Then nobody will talk to the police. Nobody will say uh, who the perpetrator was. The police get no help. and Their hands are tied. There's nothing they can do. The courts can't punish. And and then even when they, they do seem to get criminals behind bars, then governors let them all loose again to perpetrate more crimes. And, and civil order just crumbles. The foundations crumbles when there's no justice. The foundations crumble when there's no justice. That's why the psalmist rejoices that God is on the throne. That human justice may fail, but God's justice prevails. And in that is the safety and the peace and the salvation of those who are righteous. Righteous not in their own right, of course, but righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God that he is a just God and that he will mete out final justice. Otherwise, there can be no peace and no salvation for those upon whom God shines his face. 
But now one more objection is raised, and that is this, that, that God's merciful and that his, his mercy will, will trump his justice. Many people hope that, that God is like Santa Claus. You know the old Santa Claus song, he's uh, making a list, checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty and nice. What little child is scared by that song? Not one that I know of. They all know that regardless of the naughty, nice list, everybody's going to get presents on Christmas. Nobody's scared at that. They, they know that it's just an idle threat, and, and in the end, mercy triumphs. And so people hope that indeed God's mercy will triumph. But the Bible, same Bible that describes the love and mercy of God, shows him completely just He's never more merciful than he is just, never more just than he is merciful. In Romans chapter 3, in the end of that chapter, we read about a righteousness from God, which is through faith. There's a righteousness which is by the law, where you obey the law, and if you obey the law perfectly, then you are righteous before God. But nobody is able to obey the law perfectly, so nobody is righteous by the law. But there's another righteousness, a righteousness which is by faith, by faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness of Christ, which is counted to those who believe in him, credited to those who believe in him. And Paul asks at the end of that chapter that question, does this, do we then make void the law through faith? Does this mean that justice doesn't matter anymore, that the law doesn't matter anymore, that in the end all that matters is the mercy of God through faith? He says, no. God's mercy upholds the law. And how so? Because in order for you to be forgiven, the law had to be satisfied. Justice had to be satisfied. Your sin had to be paid for. There can be no forgiveness unless sin is paid for. The glory of the gospel is that you don't have to pay for your sin. Christ pays for it on your behalf. And because Christ has paid for your sin, the law is upheld and mercy is extended. Law and mercy go together. Mercy is never at the expense of justice. Hallelujah. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the bad news. The bad news that helps us to truly appreciate the good news. We confess that our proud hearts doesn't, don't want to accept the bad news, that we want to say it's not as bad as all that, but indeed it is. Help us to accept the news that we are sinners prone by nature to hate both you and our neighbor, and that apart from a new birth, we are incapable of doing anything good, so that we will no longer cling to the thought that we can save ourselves, but instead will throw